Section 51 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tad Davis. Chapter 14, The Reformation Under Edward VI, by A.F. Pollard, M.A. Part 2. As regards doctrine, the several formularies issued by Henry VIII accustomed men to the idea that the teaching of the Church of England should be uniform and something different from that of either Catholic or Reformed churches on the continent. Nor was it only in the eyes of anti-papalists that some Reformation of Church service books seemed necessary. The Reformed Breviary of Cardinal Quignon, dedicated in 1535 to Paul III, anticipated many of the changes which Cranmer made in the ancient use. In Catholic as well as in Protestant churches, the medieval services were simplified and shortened, partly in view of the busier life of the 16th century, and partly to allow more time for preaching and reading the scriptures. Thus Cranmer was only following the general tendency when, in 1543, he obtained Henry's consent to the examination and reformation of the church service books. For some years he labored at this task, but what stage he had reached in 1547, when convocation demanded the production of his work, is not clear. That demand was refused, and it was not until September 1548 that the final stage in the evolution of the first book of common prayer was commenced. Its development remains shrouded in obscurity. There is no trace of any formal commission to execute the task of the composition of the revising body or of the place where it carried on its work. Cranmer, without doubt, took the principal part, and once at least he called other divines to help him at Windsor, but it is unsafe to assume that the revisers continued to sit there, or indeed that there was any definite body of revisers at all. Probably, about the end of October, most of the bishops were invited to subscribe to the completed book, but it seems to have undergone further alteration without their consent, and there is not sufficient evidence to show that it was submitted to convocation. In December, it was in the House of Lords, the subject of an animated debate in which Cranmer, Ridley, and Sir Thomas Smith defended, and Tunstall, Bonner, Thurlby, and Heath attacked the way in which it treated the doctrine of the Mass. Cranmer himself had already advanced beyond the point of view adopted in the first book of Common Prayer. In the autumn of 1548, Bollinger's correspondence had rejoiced over the archbishop's abandonment of Lutheran views, but the doctrine assumed, if not affirmed, in the new book seemed to them to constitute a marvelous recantation. The first book of common prayer bore, indeed, little resemblance to the service books of the Zwinglian and Calvinistic churches. Its affinity with Lutheran liturgies was more marked, because the Anglican and Lutheran revisers made the ancient uses of the church their groundwork, while the other Reformed churches sought to obliterate as far as possible all traces of the Mass. It is the most conservative of all the liturgies of the Reformation. Its authors wished to build upon and not to destroy the past, and the materials on which they worked were almost exclusively the serum use and the breviary of Cardinal Quignon. Whatever intention they may have had of denying the supplemental character of the sacrifice of the Mass was studiously veiled by the retention of Roman terminology in a somewhat equivocal sense. Room was to be made, if possible, for both interpretations. The sacrifice might be regarded as real and absolute, 
or merely as commemorative and analogical. The abominable canon was removed because it shut the door on all but the Roman doctrine of the Mass, and the design of the government was to open the door to the new learning without definitely closing it on the old. The intention was to make the uniform order tolerable to as many as was possible, and the result was a cautious and tentative compromise, a sort of Anglican interim, which was more successful than its German counterpart. The penalties attached to its non-observance by the first act of uniformity were milder than those imposed by any of the subsequent acts, and they were limited to the clergy. Neither in the first act of uniformity nor in the first book of common prayer is there any attempt to impose a doctrinal test or dogmatic unity. All that was enforced was a uniformity of service, and even here considerable latitude was allowed in details like vestments and ritual. A few months later, a licensed preacher declared at St. Paul's that faith was not to be co-acted, but that every man might believe as he would. Doctrinal unity was, in fact, incompatible with that appeal to private judgment, which was the essence of the Reformation, and Somerset's government was wise in limiting its efforts to securing an outward and limited uniformity. Even this was sufficiently difficult. Eager reformers began at once to agitate for the removal of those parts of the Book of Common Prayer which earned Gardner's commendation, while Catholics resented its departure from the standard of orthodoxy set up by the Six Articles. Religious liberty was in itself distasteful to the majority, and zealots on either side were less angered by the persecution of themselves than by the toleration of their enemies. Dislike of the new service book was keenest in the West, where the men of Cornwall spoke no English and could not understand an English service book. They knew little Latin, but they were accustomed to the phrases of the ancient use, and men tolerate the incomprehensible more easily than the unfamiliar. So they rose in July 1549 and demanded the restoration of the old service, the old ceremonies, the old images, and the ancient monastic endowments. They asked that the sacrament should be administered to laymen in one kind and only at Easter, a strange demand in the mouths of those who maintained the supreme importance of the sacramental system, and that all who refused to worship it should suffer death as heretics. The Bibles were to be called in again, and Cardinal Pole was to be made first or second in the king's council. On the whole, the protector's religious policy was accompanied by singularly little persecution, and the instances quoted by Roman Catholic writers date almost without exception from the period after his fall. The Princess Mary flatly refused to obey the new law, and after some remonstrance, Somerset granted her permission to hear Mass privately in her own house. Gardner was more of an opportunist than Mary. Probably he thought that his opposition would be the more effective for being less indiscriminate. But it was no less deliberate, and in the early and effective days of the royal supremacy, when bishops were regarded as ecclesiastical sheriffs, their resistance to authority was as little tolerated as that of the soldier or the civil servant would be now. Gardner was sent to the fleet, but he was treated by Somerset with what was considered excessive lenience, and in January 1548 he was, by the king's general pardon, released. He returned to his diocese and preached obedience to the council on the ground that to suffer evil was a Christian's duty. The reason was scarcely pleasing to the government and on June 29th he was ordered to preach a sermon at Whitehall 
declaring the supreme ecclesiastical authority of the young king during his minority at the same time he was forbidden to deal with the doctrines that were in dispute on either point did he give satisfaction and on the following day he was sent to the tower bonner was sent to the marshalsea for a similar reason he had protested against the visitation of fifteen forty seven but withdrew his protest and after a few weeks in the fleet remained at liberty until september fifteen forty nine he was then accused of not enforcing the new book of common prayer and was ordered to uphold the ecclesiastical authority of the king in a sermon at st paul's on his failure to do so he was imprisoned and deprived by cranmer of his bishopric and at the same time his chaplain feckenham was sent to the tower these however are practically the only instances of religious persecution exercised during somerset's protectorate this comparative moderation while consonant with the protector's own inclination was also rendered advisable by the critical condition of england's relations with foreign powers any violent breach with catholicism any bitter persecution of its adherents would have turned into open enmity the lukewarm friendship of charles v precipitated that hostile coalition of catholic europe for which the pope and cardinal pole were intriguing and rendered impossible the union with scotland on which the tudors had set their hearts for this reason somerset declined march fifteen forty seven the proffered alliance of the german protestant princes and to strengthen his position he began negotiations for a treaty with france and discussed the possibility of a marriage between the princess elizabeth and a member of the french royal family the treaty was on the point of ratification when the death of francis i march thirty first produced a revolution in french policy the new king henry the second had when dauphin proclaimed his intention of demanding the immediate retrocession of bologna but his designs were not confined to the expulsion of the english from france he also dreamed of a union with scotland through diane de poitiers the guise influence was strong at paris through mary de guise the queen regent of scotland it was almost as powerful at edinburgh and england was menaced with a pact de famille more threatening than that of the bourbons two centuries later even francis had considered a scheme for marrying the infant queen of scots to a french prince and while henry the eighth in his last days had been organizing a new invasion of scotland the french king had been equally busy with preparations for the defence of his ancient allies henry the second of france changed a defensive into an offensive policy and in taking up the scottish policy urged upon him by henry the eighth somerset was seeking not merely to carry out one of the most cherished of tudor aims but to ward off a danger which now presented itself in more menacing guise than ever before there might be doubts as to the policy of pressing the union with scotland at that juncture there could be none as to the overwhelming and immediate necessity of preventing a union between scotland and france and gardiner's advice to let the scots be scots until the king of england came of age would have been fatal unless he could guarantee a similar abstinence during the same period on the part of henry the second somerset however pursued methods different from those of henry the eighth he abandoned alike the feudal claim to suzerainty over scotland and the claim to sovereignty which henry had asserted in fifteen forty two 
He refrained from offensive references to James V as a pretensed king. He endeavored to persuade the Scots that union was as much the interest of Scotland as of England, and all he required was the fulfillment of the treaty which the Scots themselves had made in 1543. His efforts were in vain. Encouraged by French aid in men, money, and ships, the Scottish government refused to negotiate and stirred up trouble in Ireland. In September 1547, the protector crossed the border, and on the 10th he won the crushing victory of Pinky Cluch. The result was to place the lowlands at England's mercy, and thinking he had shown the futility of resistance, Somerset attempted to complete the work by conciliation. During the winter, he put forward some remarkable suggestions for the union between England and Scotland. He proposed to abolish the names of English and Scots associated with centuries of strife and to take again the old indifferent name of Britons. The United Kingdom was to be known as the Empire and its sovereign as the Emperor of Great Britain. There was to be no forfeiture of lands or of liberty, but freedom of trade and of marriage. Scotland was to retain her local autonomy, and the children of her queen were to rule over England. Never in the history of the two realms had such liberal terms been offered, but reason which might have counseled acceptance was no match for pride, prejudice, and vested interests. Care was taken that these proposals should not reach the mass of the Scottish people. Most of the nobility were in receipt of French pensions, and the influence of the church was energetically thrown into the scale against accommodation with a schismatic enemy. It was only among the peasantry where Protestantism had made some way that the union with England was popular, and that influence was more than counterbalanced by the presence of French soldiery in the streets of Edinburgh and in most of the strongholds of Scotland. The seizure of Haddington in April 1548 secured for a year the English control of the lowlands, but it did not prevent the young queen's transportation to France, where she was at once betrothed to the Dauphin. This step provoked Somerset in October to revive once more England's feudal claims over Scotland, and to hint that the English king had a voice in the marriage of his vassal. But the Guises could afford to laugh at threats, since they knew that the internal condition of England in 1549 prevented the threats being backed by adequate force in Scotland or in France. In both kingdoms they became more aggressive. They were in communication with rebels in Ireland, and in January 1549 a French emissary was sent to England to see if Thomas Seymour's conspiracy might be fanned into civil war. Thomas Seymour, the only one of the protector's brothers who showed any aptitude or inclination for public life, had served with distinction on sea and land under Henry VIII. He had commanded a fleet in the Channel in 1545, had been made master of the ordnance, and had wooed Catherine Parr before she became Henry's sixth wife. A few days before the end of the late reign, he was sworn of the Privy Council, and on Edward's accession he was made Baron Seymour and Lord High Admiral. These dignities seemed to him poor compared with his brothers, and he thought he ought to be governor of the king's person. After unsuccessful attempts to secure the hands of the Princess Mary, the Princess Elizabeth, and Anne of Cleves, 
he married Catherine Parr without consulting his colleagues, and before her death he renewed his advances to the Princess Elizabeth. He refused the command of the fleet during the Pinky campaign and stayed at home to create a party for himself in the country. He suffered pirates to prey on the trade of the Channel and himself received a share of their ill-gotten goods. He made a corrupt bargain with Sir William Sherrington, who provided him with money by tampering with the Bristol Mint, and he began to store arms and ammunition in various strongholds which he acquired for the purpose. The disclosure of Sherrington's frauds, January 1549, brought Seymour's plots to light. After many examinations in which Warwick and Southampton took a leading part, a bill of attainder against the Admiral was introduced into Parliament. It passed with a few dissentients in the House of Commons and unanimously in the House of Lords, and on March 20th Seymour was executed. The sentence was probably just, but the protector paid dearly for his weakness in allowing it to be carried out. His enemies, such as Warwick and Southampton, who seemed to have been the prime movers in Seymour's ruin, perceived more clearly than Somerset how fatally his brother's death would undermine his own position and alienate popular favor in the struggle on which he had now embarked in the cause of the poor against the great majority of the council and the ruling classes in England. This struggle was fought over the protector's attitude towards the momentous social revolution of the 16th century, a movement which lay at the root of most of the internal difficulties of Tudor governments and vitally affected the history of the reign of Edward VI. It was, in effect, the breaking up of the foundations upon which society had been based for 500 years, the substitution of competition for custom as the regulating principle of the relations between the various classes of the community. Social organization in medieval times was essentially conservative. Custom was the characteristic sanction to which appeal was universally made. Land, in the eyes of its military feudal lord, was valuable less as a source of money than as a source of men. It was not rent, but service, that he required, and he was seldom tempted to reduce his service role in order to swell his revenues. But the Black Death and the Peasants' Revolt, cooperating with more silent and gradual causes, weakened the mutual bonds of interest between landlord and tenant, while the extension of commerce produced a wealthy class which slowly gained admission into governing circles and established itself on the land. To these new landlords, land was mainly an investment. They applied to it the principles which they practiced in trade, and sought to extract from it not men, but money. They soon found that the petite culture of feudal times was not the most profitable use to which land could be turned, and they began the practice known as engrossing, of which complaint was made as early as 1484 in the Lord Chancellor's speech to Parliament. Their method was to buy up several holdings, which they did not lease to so many yeomen, but consolidated, leaving the old homesteads to decay. The former tenants became either vagabonds or landless laborers who boarded with their masters and were precluded by their position from marrying and raising families. Similarly, the new landed gentry sought to turn their vague and disputed rights over common lands into palpable means of revenue. 
sometimes with and often without the consent of the commoners they proceeded to enclose vast stretches of land with a view to converting it either to tillage or to pasture the latter proved to be the more remunerative owing to the great development of the wool market in the netherlands and it was calculated that the lord who converted open arable land into enclosed pasture land thereby doubled his income yet another method of extracting the utmost monetary value from the land was the raising of rents it had rarely occurred to the uncommercial feudal lord to interfere with the ancient service or rent which his tenants paid for their lands but respect for immemorial custom counted for little against the retired trader's habit of demanding the highest price for his goods the direct result of these tendencies was to pauperize a large section of the community though the aggregate wealth of the whole was increased the english yeomen who had supplied the backbone of english armies and the great majority of students at english universities were depressed into vagabonds or hired laborers as indirect results schools and universities declined and foreign mercenaries took the place of english soldiers for shepherds wrote a contemporary be but ill archers these evils had not passed without notice from statesmen and writers in the previous reign wolsey inspired perhaps by sir thomas moore had in fifteen seventeen made a vigorous effort to check enclosures and moore himself had sympathetically portrayed the grievances of the population in the pages of his utopia later in the reign of henry the eighth remedial measures had been warmly urged by conservatives like thomas loopset and thomas starkey and by more radical thinkers like brinklow and robert crowley but the king and his ministers were absorbed in the task of averting foreign complications and effecting a religious revolution while courtiers and ordinary members of parliament were not concerned to check a movement from which they reaped substantial profit after the accession of edward the sixth the constant aggravation of the evil and the sympathy it was known to evoke in high quarters brought the question more prominently forward the protector himself denounced with more warmth than prudence the misdeeds of new lords sprung from the dunghill latimer inveighed against them in eloquent sermons preached at court scory told the young king that his subjects had become more like the slavery and peasantry of france than the ancient and godly yeomanry of england cranmer lever and other reforming divines held similar opinions but the most earnest and active member of the party which came to be known as the commonwealth's men was john hales whose discourse of the common weal is one of the most informing documents of the age the existence of this party alarmed the official class but the protector more or less openly adopted its social programme and it was doubtless with his connivance that various remedial measures were introduced into parliament in december fifteen forty seven one bill for bringing up poor men's children was apparently based on the suggestion made by brinklow in the previous reign that a certain number of the poorest children in each town should be brought up at the expense of the community another bill sought to give farmers and lessees security of tenure and a third provided against the decay of tillage and husbandry none of these bills got beyond a second reading and the only measure which found favor with parliament was an act which provided that a weekly collection in churches should be made for the impotent poor 
and that confirmed vagabonds might be sold into slavery. The failure of Parliament to find adequate remedies was the signal for agrarian disturbances in Hertfordshire and other counties in the spring of 1548, and the Protector, moved thereto by divers supplications, some of which are extant, now determined to take action independently of Parliament. On the 1st of June he issued a proclamation in which he referred to the insatiable greediness of those by whose means houses were decayed, parishes diminished, the force of the realm weakened, and Christian people eaten up and devoured of brute beasts and driven from their houses by sheep and bullocks. Commissioners were appointed to inquire into the extent of enclosures made since 1485 and the failure of previous legislation to check them and to make returns of those who broke the law. The commissioners, of whom Hales was the chief, encountered an organized and stubborn resistance from those on whose conduct they were to report. With the view to disarming opposition, the presentment of offenders was postponed until evidence should have been collected to form the basis of measures to be laid before Parliament, and subsequently Hales obtained from the Protector a general pardon of the offenders presented by the Commission. Both measures failed to mollify the gentry who resolutely set themselves to burke the inquiry. They packed the juries with their own servants, they threatened to evict tenants, who gave evidence against them, and even had them indicted at the assizes. Other means taken to conceal the truth were the ploughing up of one furrow in a holding enclosed to pasture, the whole being then returned as arable land, and the placing of a couple of oxen with a flock of sheep and passing off the sheep run as land devoted to fatting beasts. Under these circumstances it was with difficulty that the commissioners could get to work at all, and only those commissions on which Hales sat appear to have made any return. The opposition was next transferred to the Houses of Parliament. In November 1548, Hales introduced various bills for maintaining tillage and husbandry, for restoring tenements which had been suffered to decay, and for checking the growth of sheep farms. An act was passed remitting the payment of fee farms for three years, in order that the proceeds might be devoted to finding work for the unemployed, and a tax of tuppence was imposed on every sheep kept in pasture. But the more important bills were received with open hostility, and after acrimonious debates they were all rejected, either by the Lords or by the Commons. This result is not surprising, for the statute of 1430 had limited parliamentary representation, so far as the agricultural districts were concerned, to the landed gentry and there are frequent complaints of the time that the representation of the boroughs had also fallen mainly into the hands of capitalists, who, by engrossing household property and monopolizing trade, were providing the poorer townsfolk with grievances similar to those of the country folk. Nor was there a masterful tutor to overall resistance. The government was divided, for Somerset's adoption of the peasants' cause had driven the majority of the council into secret opposition, Warwick seized the opportunity. Hitherto there had been no apparent differences between him and Somerset, but now his park was ploughed up as an illegal enclosure, and he fiercely attacked Hales as the cause of the agrarian discontent. Other members of the government, including even his ally Paget, remonstrated with the protector, but without effect, except to stiffen his back and confirm him in his course. Fresh instructions were issued to the commissioners in 1549, 
and having failed to obtain relief for the poor by legislation, Somerset resorted to the arbitrary expedient of erecting a sort of court of requests, which sat in his own house under Cecil's presidency to hear any complaint that poor suitors might bring against their oppressors. Measures like these were of little avail to avert the dangers Somerset feared. Parliament had scarcely disposed of his bills when the resentment of the peasants found vent in open revolt. The flame was kindled first in Somersetshire. Thence it spread eastwards into Wilts and Gloucestershire, southwards into Dorset and Hampshire, and northwards into Marks and the shires of Oxford and Buckingham. Surrey remained in a state of quavering quiet, but Kent felt the general impulse. Far in the west Cornwall and Devon rose, and in the east the men of Norfolk captured Norwich, and established a commonwealth on Mousehold Hill, where Robert Kett, albeit himself a landlord of ancient family, laid down the law, and no rich man did what he liked with his own. The civil war which the French king had hoped to evoke from Seymour's conspiracy seemed to have come at last, and with it the opportunity of France. On August 8, 1549, at Whitehall Palace, the French ambassador made a formal declaration of war. The successful chauvinist policy of the French government would have precipitated a conflict long before, but for the efforts of the English to avoid it. Henry II had begun his reign by breaking off the negotiations for an alliance with England, and declining to ratify the arrangement which the English and French commissioners had drawn up for the delimitation of the Bolognese. But a variety of circumstances induced him to modify for a time his martial ardor, and restrict his hostility to a policy of pinpricks administered to the English in their French possessions. The complete defeat of the German princes at Muhlberg, April 1547, made Henry anxious as to the direction in which the emperor would turn his victorious arms, and the rout of the Scots at Pinkey five months later inspired a wholesome respect for English power. Then, in 1548, Guienne broke out in revolt against the Gabelle and clamored for the privileges it had once enjoyed under its English kings. Charles V, moreover, although he disliked the religious changes in England and declined to take any active part against the Scots, gave the French to understand that he considered the Scots his enemies. Somerset, meanwhile, did his best to keep on friendly terms with Charles and sought to mitigate his dislike of the first act of uniformity by granting the Princess Mary a dispensation to hear Mass in private. Unless the Emperor's attention was absorbed elsewhere, a French attack on England might provoke an imperial onslaught on France. Still, the endless bickerings with France about Bologna were very exasperating, and eventually the Protector offered to restore it at once for the sum stipulated in the Treaty of 1546 if France would further the marriage between Edward VI and Mary, Queen of Scots. That, however, was the last thing to which the Guises would consent. The preservation of their influence in Scotland was at that moment the mainspring of their action and the chief cause of the quarrel with England. The only condition on which they would keep the peace was the abandonment of Scotland to their designs, and that condition the Protector refused to the last to grant. Before the end of June 1549, the French had assumed so threatening an attitude that Somerset sent Paget to Charles V with proposals for the marriage of the Princess Mary with the Infant John of Portugal, for the delivery of Bologna into the Emperor's hands, and for a joint invasion of France by imperial and English armies. This embassy seems to have alarmed Henry II, and he at once appointed commissioners to settle the disputes in the Bolognese. 
The Protector thereupon forbade Paget to proceed with the negotiations for a joint invasion. The Emperor, at the same time, doubtful of the value of England's alliance in her present disturbed condition, and immersed in anxieties of his own, declined to undertake the burden of Bologna, or to knit any closer his ties with England. This refusal encouraged the French king to begin hostilities. He had collected an army on the borders of the Bolognese, and in August it crossed the frontier. Amritus, New Haven, was captured through treachery, Blactus was taken by assault, Boulogneburg was dismantled and abandoned by the English, and the French forces sat down to besiege Boulogne. End of section 51 Read by Tad Davis